You're listening to Station F, the podcast. From the world's largest startup campus in Paris. Hi, my name is Roxanne Varza, director at Station F, the world's largest startup campus located in Paris, and this is the second episode of Station F, the podcast. This week, I'd like to welcome to the podcast Trey Stevens, who is a partner with Founders Fund. Hello, Trey. Hi, Roxanne. How are you? Great. Uh, now, some of you may already know Founders Fund as it includes other high-profile partners, including Peter Thiel, and an all-star portfolio, including Facebook, SpaceX, Airbnb, Palantir, and even the odd European company like Spotify. We'll talk about all of this in a minute, but as with every episode, let's first start with a startup good news. Station F Podcast. Startup good news. Hi, Jonathan Pariso. Hey, Roxanne. Uh, so you are the co-founder of ActionDesk, a SaaS company from the Founders Program originally that helps companies build data-driven automatic workflows. Sounds pretty fancy. Uh, tell me what that means. Uh, of course. Yeah. Um, so we help uh, companies and non-technical teams within companies to gather data from various sources, whether it's their um, SQL database, uh, their Stripe account, their CRM, into a spreadsheet software, uh, whether it's Google Sheets, Excel, or our own spreadsheet on ActionDesk. So this essentially replaces what? Uh, we replace ultimately Excel and Google Sheets. Okay, so that's taking on a pretty big competitor. Yes. Nice. Um, and you guys joined the Founders Program about a year ago, uh, but more recently, you guys attended Y Combinator in California. In fact, you literally just finished the program like a few weeks ago, I think. Yes, four um, weeks ago. Nice. And so now getting into YC is actually still pretty rare for French startups. So tell us what are your key takeaways? Um, so I think we... We know a lot about the process to get in, into YC because we've applied four times uh, and we ultimately got in, in at the fourth time. Um, I think the the main thing is what YC would tell you, which is to build something that people want. So a product uh, where you have users that use it and pay for it because they like it. Um, and I think just uh, on the application itself, um, something we've learned if I look at the first application we've sent it was very very long um, and we were trying to explain every single thing about our business uh, and what you need to have in mind is that a reviewer uh, on the YC side will spend uh, spend one or two minutes per application uh, and he doesn't want to know everything about your business he wants to know the one or two things that uh, makes him think, makes her think um, that you can be a billion dollar business. So uh, the main advice here would be to be extra concise um, and not to spend uh, time on things that do not matter, that, not, that are not important and that do not make you a good uh, company and to uh, really spend time on the thing that makes you special, whether it's your team, your product, uh, the fact that you have crazy growth, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's for like the getting into YC part. Uh, in terms of key learning from YC, uh, there are a lot, um, but I think the main uh, the main thing is that they have uh, very good principles. Um, they and, and those principles come from the experience of um, YC founders, um, or like the founders of YC uh, rather. So Paul Graham, Jessica Livingston, um, and from having seen thousands of companies uh, fail and succeed. 
Um, and the funny thing is most of those principles are things we all know because we've read the articles from Paul Graham uh, and, um, you know, we've heard them. Uh, but the, the interesting thing is that you hear them over and over when at YC. So you have a dinner every week uh, with a few talks from YC partners uh, and a few talks from uh, entrepreneurs, uh, mostly YC alumni. Um, I think maybe the the key principle, the key principles for us were uh, the first one is to do things that do not scale. Um, so there's a very good article from Paul Graham on on the on the subject, uh, and the the way to apply to us is where um, we are we see an early product and it can be a little bit hard to um, start using Action Desk, and we were trying to be a self service uh, product where people would just come and sign up and start using the products, except that it was not working. Um, and YC told us, uh, do not be self-service right now. Um, just talk to your users, uh, understand what they want to do and do it for them. Uh, and that's what we started doing at the beginning of YC. And it was uh, it was key to enable uh, us to grow very fast during the three months. Uh, that's one, a second principle that they repeat uh, over and over is that as an entrepreneur pre-product market fit, uh, there are only two things that you need to do, uh, which are building a product and talking to your users slash customers. Um, and that's really what we've done on, for the for the three months and that worked very well. Um, and a third thing which is interesting, uh, which came more at the end of YC, uh, you know, before and during the fundraising period, uh, which is, um, they repeated a lot that um, you know fundraising is not a success, um, and they just a way um, to to I mean to an end. Sorry, um, and yeah, that that's that's very good to hear, even though you know it. But that's very good to 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 hear it, um, especially when you have sometimes competitors who waste uh, way more than you, um, and they give you uh, a lot of examples showing that the correlation between fundraising and success is actually not that uh, as big as you could expect. So I think the key takeaways are if you're applying to YC and you don't get in the first time, apply, apply, apply yes. again. <laughs> um, and also, it sounds like you guys really just had your heads down working on this. Uh, essentially, they repeat to you, build a great product, uh, get out and talk to your customer. What did you actually learn from talking to your customers? Uh, well, a, a lot of things. Uh, I think we, we had in mind when we... So we, we already had a product before starting YC and we were talking to our users, uh, but something that, that came up is we had this very powerful product that can do a lot of things. Um, and we were trying to kind of market all of those things and talking to our users and uh, trying out various acquisition channels, we realized that there was one use case, one killer use case that was very easy to um, uh, to explain and that was very easy for users to understand and that uh, was very easy to set up with Action Desk. And that's uh, something we discovered two or three weeks before the end of YC, so before Demo Day, and we were able to double our revenue uh, in two weeks because of that. Nice. Uh, yeah. What's the secret feature? <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, it's just uh, the ability to get, uh, so what, what we've seen is uh, in pretty much every company in the world, you have people uh, copy-pasting CSV data, uh, so extracting data from one system and copy-pasting it in a Google Sheet or in a, an Excel file. 
uh, and then you have a lot of things built on top of that root data uh, in, the, in, in the Google Sheet or Excel. Um, and with Action Desk, you can automate that process in probably one or two minutes. Um, and that's something that take maybe advantage of 10% of the features of Action Desk, uh, so that we didn't think about that much. Um, but that's actually the, the killer use case. Well, great. I think we're going to have to work on getting paid forward culture really going in Europe. Uh, Jonathan, we wish you guys so much luck. We're looking forward to watching Action Desk progress and thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you very much. Station F Podcast. Focus. All right, so Trey, uh, as I mentioned, you're partner at Founders Fund with an all-star portfolio and we'll get a chance to jump into all of it in just a moment. First, for our listeners, I'd like to share a bit about your background. Uh, you actually started your career at the Embassy of Afghanistan in D.C., if I'm correct, mm -hmm. and then made your way into venture capital in Silicon Valley. So that's quite unusual. Tell us how it all happened. Sure. So I, you know, I was a senior in high school when 9-11 happened and decided at that point that I wanted to do something in service to the country and uh, ended up going to Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. to the School of Foreign Service kind of with the intent on joining the intelligence community after graduation, which I did. Um, part of my college experience was the crazy run at the embassy of Afghanistan, which was a lot of fun. Um, and after about three years of working in the intelligence community, um, I think I kind of washed out on bureaucracy, to be entirely honest, and uh, had seen an early demo of this crazy company called Palantir, um, that had no customers, had no revenue, and uh, was kind of just trying to figure out how to navigate Washington, D.C. So um, I ended up joining the company super early uh, and took on a big chunk of responsibility in uh, sales and business development, which was a long cry from what I thought I would be doing three years after college. Uh, had a great time doing that. Um, over the course of the six years that I was there, I uh, got to know our chairman, Peter Thiel, very well. And uh, in 2013, Peter asked me kind of out of the blue if I would be interested in venture capital, um, which the answer was no. Um, I have no interest in finance. I'm not really sure why that was something that seemed like a good idea to him at the time. Um, but somehow over the next nine months, he and the team uh, kind of impressed upon me the importance of their mission. And so in January of 2014, I joined Founders on. Super. And we're going to come to Founders Fund in a second. But actually, you said something that really caught my attention. So you saw Palantir. You were blown away by it. And it had no revenue and no customers. What could have possibly impressed you at the time? <laughs> well, to, I knew nothing about startups, to be honest. So it wasn't like I was making a, uh, you know, very well analyzed and evaluated decision. I didn't even know what it meant to have revenue or have stock options or anything like that at the time. Um, you know, I, I think the key thing that I discovered is that when I joined the U.S. government and the intelligence community, I, I kind of expected that it would be something along the lines of the way that the mass media um, produces it. You know, it's like James Bond. I'm going to show up. They're going to give me the keys to an Aston Martin. I'm going to have all this cool technology. And then I sat down and I had a CRT monitor in Windows 98. And I'm like, whoa, this is this is not what I thought this was going to be. Um, and so seeing Palantir was kind of the first time I had seen something that um, felt like the future. And it didn't take, you know, a far cry from where I was sitting at my desk in the basement of a windowless building um, to realize that we weren't doing things the right way. And, um, and Palantir was kind of a, a window into 
figuring out what the right way might actually look like. Interesting. All right. And so now fast forward to Founders Fund. And you guys are obviously um, definitely well known for a number of different reasons. I think also because you guys take really strong positions on certain things. And uh, one of them is politics. <laughs> so hopefully we'll, we'll get a chance to touch on that. But I'm interested first, just from an investor perspective, what's getting you excited today in terms of technologies and industries? You know, not much. Uh, the reality is, is that tech has really stagnated in a massive way over the last 50 years. Um, you know, if you if you think about all of these different categories that you could explore uh, and how that trajectory has changed over the last 120 years, um, I think it's pretty consistent across all these categories that we've kind of started slowing down. Um, if you think about something like aircraft speed, you know, in the very early 1900s, um, the Wright Flyer um, uh, had first flight. It was super slow, like tens of miles an hour. Um, and then leading into World War II, we had, you know, hundreds of miles an hour. Um, coming out of World War II, the Messerschmitt 262, I think, crossed like the 500-mile-an-hour barrier. Um, and then 20 years later, we had, uh, roughly 20 years later, we had the SR-71 that was at Mach 3. It was like inconceivable that over the course of 60 years, we went from you know, 15 miles an hour to Mach 3. Um, and yet, if you look back over the previous 60 years from today backwards to the SR-71, there's been nothing. We've done nothing. We haven't gotten a single mile per hour faster than, uh, than that uh, kind of watershed moment in the, in the 60s and 70s. And I, I think this is mirrored across all sorts of categories. And so at Founders Fund, we're, we're looking for the really unique businesses that are interested in doing something disruptive that has a plan for the future. Um, you know, uh, it, it's hard to, it's hard to articulate exactly what it is that we see on a really common basis, but generally speaking, most companies are deeply mimetic. They're just imitating other businesses. And those are the ones we find not to be really interesting at all. Okay. So if not a lot is getting you guys interested today, um, is it just things that are shaking up traditional industries that you're looking at, just like little incremental innovations? I mean, it's kind of almost paradoxical what you've just said, because you do have obviously a crazy portfolio with mind-blowing businesses, um, yet at the same time, are they just so rare that we just don't see them that often? So it's what's what's actually happening? It is super rare. That's, <laughs> that's the answer, I think. Um, you know, the reason we're called Founders Fund is that we're a fund for founders. And so we don't invest in categories or you know, look for specific ideas or, um, you know, look at things on a relative basis. Even a lot of times in like the sector specific funds, you'll say, okay, I'm really interested in cyber. So I'm going to go out and look at all the cyber companies and then I'm going to pick the one or ones that seem the best out of that group. But that's really evaluating on a relative basis. And maybe the answer is that none of them are good. None of them have scaling potential. Um, whereas we, being a generalist fund, have the ability to sit back and just say, we're going to wait for the outstanding founders, the people that we believe are going to be able to scale these businesses. And I think that's where you you see in our portfolio, you get these crazy uh, um, kind of autism spectrum founders like Zuckerberg and Musk and Chesky and the Collisons and Palmer Lucky and things like that. Um, and you know, the belief is, is that sure, the ideas are weird and unique, um, but really it's like the people that ultimately make these things work. And talk to me a little bit about how you feel the in investment game has changed over the last few years. You've been doing this for what, five, six years now? Yeah, six years. I, I think that by and large, the opportunities are going to exist in every economic cycle. So, 
you know, if going into the dot-com crash, if you had invested in Amazon or Google, you were fine. You were going to make a lot of money. Um, going into the 2007, 2008 crash, if you invested in Facebook, you were fine. Everything was going to work. Um, and I think that the economic cycle argument doesn't really apply to a power law adjusted venture curve um, where just a handful of investments are going to represent the vast majority of your capital returns. Um, but I would say the one area that has seen a significant shift is in growth. And this is just kind of the soft bank impact. Um, you start seeing a lot of really inflated value valuations at later stages. Um, and there are all these questions around, you know, whether or not these companies are going to have to pay the piper. Um, and, you know, you see this kind of hanging in the balance with WeWork right now. Um, and it's hard to say how long uh, this, uh, this music is going to play. So I'm glad you mentioned SoftBank because that's exactly where I was going with that question. And we see a lot of investors that kind of have uh, mixed two negative feelings about the impact and having to play alongside SoftBank. Uh, what is the Founders Fund perspective? Our perspective is to find the things that other people aren't looking at. Um, the moment that you start kind of chasing these massively competitive deals, um, you see a, a lot of upward valuation pressure, um, which changes the economics of the deal. Um, generally speaking, when SoftBank is starting to plug in with their, you know, half a billion and up check sizes, um, you can kind of bet that that company is pretty fully priced. So uh, I guess the, the way that it affects us most is that we generally try not to get into a competitive cadence with those large growth funds. Okay, so now I want to turn to a topic that I was really excited to talk to you about today. So I'm so glad I get to ask you this. Um, so in addition, obviously, to Founders Fund, you're also the chairman of Andrew, I hope I pronounced that correctly, um, a company that you co-founded with some others from Palantir and also the founder of Oculus uh, to reinvent national security, starting with Trump's border wall, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so that's a touchy subject. Uh, can you tell us what this company does, first of all, but also how technology would replace or be combined with the need for a wall? Sure. Um, so I guess I'll start at the second question and then go back to the first. So I don't think anyone really knows what Trump's border wall actually is. Um, I can say conclusively that it doesn't seem like that's the thing that we're building. Um, I think the thing that uh, the president has been talking about is a physical barrier of some sort, um, which is, you know, a pretty audacious uh, goal that would require an astronomically large budget and uh, a lot of time to, to construct. Um, and it's not clear that it's actually possible across all of the terrain on the southwest uh, border of United States and Mexico. Um, so that's that's not what we're doing, very distinctly, not what we're doing. Um, okay, so then I'll go back to what the company is doing. So um, when I first joined Founders Fund, um, not knowing anything about venture capital, as I said, I decided that I wanted to spend my time uh, figuring out a marketplace that I knew pretty well, which was the government space. Um, so Founders Fund being a large investor in both Palantir and SpaceX, um, I thought that we had a unique angle on attracting the companies that are interested and willing to do business with not only the U.S. government, but foreign governments as well. Um, and I came to find something that I didn't expect, which is that actually Palantir and SpaceX are literally the only two uh, multi-billion dollar venture-backed companies that do the majority of their business with the government. Um, there are no other examples, uh, which is pretty crazy. Uh, so I met with over 100 companies um, in my first couple of years at Founders Fund that had either been doing work with the government or had expressed an interest in doing work with the government, um, made a couple small investments, but hadn't really scaled into anything. 
Um, and it kind of impressed on me the importance of figuring out ways that we can create efficiencies uh, in critical areas of national security that just weren't being touched by the tech community, um, particularly around autonomous systems and artificial intelligence. So the question is, why is that the right thing to do? And there's like all sorts of big, hairy, ethical questions that go along with this. Um, my, my thesis then and, and now is that our adversaries, um, and our, I mean, very in a very real sense, France is included in this hour. Um, our aver adversaries to liberal democracies, countries like China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, um, they are not approaching these problems with the same ethical framework that we are, and they're building it. Um, China and Russia have demonstrated that they are rolling out autonomous systems with artificial intelligence built in, um, with very different concepts around privacy. Um, China isn't has uh, been, you know, trying to sweep under the rug the surveillance work they're doing in Western China with the Uyghur community, literally throwing, you know, a million people into work camps um, using surveillance technology that's built by SenseTime, uh, which is, I think, the largest AI company in the world at this point by market cap. Um, and so my approach was, I think, in order to compete, in order to um, protect the values in liberal democracies that we care about, um, we need to build company or companies uh, that are uh, keeping us ahead um, so that we have the ability to set the standards and norms rather than uh, than the bad guys. Uh, and I think, you know, China has demonstrated that they're not only willing to build this internally, but they're also very interested in exporting it and have done that to other places like Egypt, Iran, um, uh, Venezuela, things like that. So. Uh, if we don't set the standards and norms in the Western world, then someone else is going to do it for us. And that's not a world I want to live in. Okay, so just so that I get this clear, because you touched upon China, which obviously has a really different approach to data protection and privacy. Um, does that mean that you think in order to succeed, we need to play the game by their rules and do it exactly the same way? No, actually, I'm saying the opposite. Exactly uh, the opposite. Yeah, the, I think that we need to build the technologies that keep us ahead, but do it with... Uh, the ethical frameworks that have been established in liberal dem democratic societies, uh, you know, protection of privacy, um, uh, strong uh, guidance around how the machines are making the decisions that they're making, so some transparency in the AI process, um, data expungement, you know, doing all the things that you need to do to make sure that these technologies aren't being misused. And, um, and that's kind of at the core of what Andrew is trying to do is um, build a truly ethical system that takes our men and women in service out of harm's way um, while also protecting the privacy and civil liberties of the, the people that are impacted by those tech uh, products. Super. So I think also you mentioned France, but I'm not going to uh, go into France on a political standpoint or on a data standpoint, but more just you've been spending now a few days in, in Paris trying to get to know the ecosystem uh, with a lot of other uh, great investors as well with the government. Um, I'm just wondering also, you guys have the odd European company from time to time in your portfolio. What is uh, your view of the European ecosystem and specifically the French ecosystem? Yeah, I, I definitely don't think everything is centralized around Silicon Valley. Um, in fact, I, I think this is still true of our most recent fund, Fund 6. Uh, that the majority of companies are not in the Bay Area, um, which is a shift from previous from previous funds. Um, and you know, we're not seeing that these are uh, the investments are centralizing in like a Plan B um, behind San Francisco. It really is more of a decentralization. Um, so we're seeing 
investments banking companies in Austin and in New York and in Los Angeles and in London and uh, in a variety of places around the world. And um, I think Europe has has a really interesting value proposition um, as a counter to the U.S. tech ecosystem, both in cost of living and cost of talent uh, and in kind of a uh, better governance of cities. I mean, I can't imagine a city governed worse than San Francisco. So uh, there are all of these uh, variety of upsides uh, and pockets of uh, talent that you're not necessarily going to find in the U.S. You know, there's a reason that DeepMind was as successful as they were in London. Um, you know, it turns out that they had a pocket of AI talent coming out of Oxford that was uh, that was ripe for uh, for disruption. So great. So based on what you've seen over the last few days, what has gotten you particularly excited in Europe? Um, I, I think the key thing is playing to strengths. So figuring out what it is about the French market or the European pan-European market in general uh, that companies that are here understand that companies outside of the United States, China, whatever, don't understand. Um, you know, uh, let me talk about one of my concerns over the last couple of days and how that could map into a positive version of the story. So I've heard a lot about um, fears of tech platform competition, kind of this idea that the world is getting eaten eaten by Google, Facebook, Amazon, whatever. Um, and this is really concerning as, uh, as an, uh, an angle that the tech community takes. Um, and this is actually deeply French, um, which is part of the shocking, uh, the most shocking part of this. Uh, a French philosopher named René Girard, um, who was a professor at Stanford, um, like started this theory called mimetic theory, um, which basically is about imitation. It says that all of human desire is rooted in an uh, uh, imitation of others. So you have a model and everything you want is actually, you want it because someone else wants it and you're just modeling the people around you. And you know what I've been hearing in the last few days is everyone's afraid of the tech platforms. And my response to that is, holy cow, that's so mimetic. Like, is there really no business in the entire world that is different enough that Google, Facebook, Amazon wouldn't compete with it? I think the answer is yes, of course. There are thousands and thousands of things that they're not going to touch. And companies in the US, companies in China, companies in Canada, companies, every, everyone is competing. Um, and you can't just say we're going to regulate that competition away and so that our companies can, can what? Can imitate Google successfully? Like, why, why would you do that? That's dumb. You shouldn't imitate anything. You should create things that are actually unique. Um, and so I think that Going back to the playing to, to your strengths, there are all sorts of really kind of unique angles that the French ecosystem has that the United States doesn't. You know, there's like, we don't understand how banking works in Europe. We don't understand how insurance works in Europe. We don't understand how um, supply chain logistics necessarily works in Europe. Um, we don't understand uh, nuclear technologies nearly as well as the, as the French do. Um, and so my strong bias would be Play to those strengths. Figure out the things that a company in San Francisco isn't going to be able to compete with and build those things. I think that's terrific advice. And I think we'll end on that very constructive point. So thank you so much, Trey. It's been a pleasure having you with us. Sure. Thank you for having me. So thanks a lot for listening. Please give us your feedback by Twitter or by email at press at stationf.co. Make sure you follow us and don't miss out on our next episodes. We're available on all of your usual podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, and TuneIn.